Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, we'll be discussing the foundational tactical concept of the end state with retired LASD Lieutenant John Stanley. Mr. John Stanley, welcome to the Cato Podcast. John, you had a successful career at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, are a member of the Field Command Training Cadre, and a civil disturbance and less lethal expert. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you developed an interest in these concepts? Well, uh, happy to be here. I uh, spent I said, 32 years with the uh, LASD and retired three years ago. And when I, w- when I retired, I was said I was a, a lieutenant and also a uh, platoon leader for one of our um, riot crowd control team uh, units from the uh, Sheriff's Response Team, the SRT. But uh, my interest in this goes way back to uh, when I joined the custody training unit back in 1996. Custody training was a uh, unit that kind of did a little bit of everything. And uh, among the, the various uh, things that we taught were uh, non-lethal weapons, as well as uh, riot crowd control training tactics, because uh, the, um, the jails of uh, LA County were notorious for their, uh, their major disturbances. I mean, they, if, if literally, if, if we every disturbance in the jails made the news, it would be, I wouldn't want to say a daily thing, but at least maybe a weekly thing. We had a lot of a lot of riots and disturbances in our jails. Historically, um, newly promoted sergeants and lieutenants um, were assigned to custody, and then they didn't stay there very long before they matriculated out to patrol. So we, there wasn't a great deal of experience in handling those incidents when they went down. And specifically, the incident in '86, um, we ended up uh, bringing in our SWAT team. Uh, and uh, when SCB came in, uh, things didn't go exactly as they would have liked them to go. Um, in fact, we even had some executives who were there and they had some command and control issues. And so after that incident ended, what uh, was decided was we needed a custody incident command school to teach these new sergeants and lieutenants to handle the problems and not have to bring in outsiders to deal with the problems. The lieutenants who put that class together uh, all went on to very uh, august ranks in the department. Um, one of them, uh, John Scott, even became the sheriff of the department. Another guy. Uh, that uh, some of the uh, listeners may be familiar with, a guy named Dick Odenthal was another one of the lieutenants who helped put that class together. And uh, I came along about a decade later when in kind of as a third generation instructor for that custody incident command school. And though I hadn't been present for the creation of it, I mean, sort of in, I inherited these things and, and uh, many of these principles, I came to later find out, you know, were rooted in tactical science. And I didn't have this epiphany until about 2004 when the first tactical science class that Sid Hale and Dick Odenthal and, and Tim Anderson and et al. put together was, took place. And I had the opportunity to attend it and realized that uh, a lot of what I'd been teaching for all these years in the incident command school was tactical science. And so for me, I took it to it like a, a duck to water and became very involved. But I also incorporated many of the principles of tactical science into the custody incident command school. And so, like I said, I'm very, very familiar with, with these subjects, and I've, you know, sort of pressed into it. I've got a master's degree in history. Most of the writing that I've done, the 80-plus uh, articles I've written, have been related to history or tactics or, or something, you know, trying to marry those two subjects up with tactical science. And, you know, obviously, most recently, I've been doing a column for Cato in a tactical history while I try to do those things. And also, 
for the past five years, I've been writing the Tactical Science Facebook page. And in 2008, we formed the, uh, the SRT um, that came into existence after the LAPD had their MacArthur Park incident. And the Sheriff's Department realized that we would, if that had been us, we probably would have had the exact same situation and issues. And, uh, you know, I, I was part of the, the teaching cadre of sergeants for that unit. And then, like I said, went on and became a lieutenant and platoon leader for that, uh, for that unit. So, like I said, all these concepts, all these principles that we talk about, and most specifically the one we're going to be addressing today of end state, is very, very important to understand and how to uh, formulate your plans, how to, how to lead effectively, how to make sure your missions come off the way you want them to come off. And again, they're easier concepts to understand, but unfortunately, they're not, they're not taught very, very uh, frequently or very well. And I think that uh, your listeners will definitely benefit from a, a deeper appreciation of this subject as we get into it. You make a great point about law enforcement training, John, and that's uh, until usually we have a bad incident, we don't spend enough time on the education portion. And you see, you know, our profession go in these circles. Usually it's related to budgets and politics. And then you look at like tactical science, which is really distilled from Sid, Odie, and Tim's uh, military colleges and the months and months and months of, of, of uh, classes that they get to go to. And then you compare that to some law enforcement training and, and the average law enforcement officer does not get little to no training on doctrine. And we get a lot of procedural training, but not a lot of principal training. So that's why we wanted to have you on. That's why we wanted to discuss uh, what the end state is. It was a term that I had not heard of before I had attended a tactical science class and I'm not that smart. So I had to attend a couple different sessions of tactical science before I could really start wrestling with it. And then, uh, really spent several years and still do wrestling with what that is. Because like you said, in concept, the end state is an easy thing to define, but in practice, it can be a complex thing and, and how that works. That's what we want to talk about today. So if we go to the the good book of strategy and tactics, which I will refer to as field command or sound doctrine. What, what is the definition there of end state? Well, very specifically, I'm quoting from it. Um, end state is those required conditions that define achievement of the commander's objectives. In the simplest terms, the end state describes the desired result or final outcome of a tactical operation. And as you said, those are very simple terms, but uh, you know, trying to actually explain that is uh, something that you know is is sometimes sadly lacking. One of the things too, I think, and I'm going to back up just slightly before you get to end state, because you have to you have to be able to envision what your end state is. You have to be able to see it, you know, to sort of to steal a little bit of a, a cliche or metaphor. You have to be able to see something before you can seize it. And um, I think one of the best illustrations of uh, end state envisioning the end state took place in the movie Gettysburg. And uh, in, there's a scene early on in that movie where um, uh, Sam Elliott, who plays uh, Union General John Buford, cavalry officer, rides up the day before the battle into the Gettysburg, and he just looks out on the terrain. And he has the ability, because of his training and his experience, to see the battle before it takes place. Uh, literally look into the future and envision um, what that is going to look like. And so when he sees that, I mean, he, he's obviously, you know, he, the training, the experience, he realizes that he needs, you know, there's going to be a, 
um, an, an ultimate outcome. And that the end state is gonna be involved uh, who's, who seizes the high terrain, who does what needs to be done. And so he, recognizing that the, the terrain is critical, he puts together a, a plan to delay the uh, Confederate troops from arriving and taking the, their, uh, those high heights over Gettysburg before the Union Army gets there. So he has the ability to see into the future what it's gonna look like and, and then be able to articulate what uh, an end state might be. But let me sort of kind of bring it down to more practical terms for us in law enforcement. And um, I'm gonna give a couple of, couple of illustrations that I think will highlight this. Typically for you know, SWAT, you know, a call out for a SWAT call out is gonna involve, we got a bad guy, some kind of felon, and he's, he's barricaded himself inside of a, of a location. And so, you know, the team arrives to the location, they talk to the, whoever the incident commander is, said, yeah, the guy's in there. And again, what's our, what is our end state? What do we want to achieve with the bad guy in there? I think, you know, it's pretty clear that the end state is we want the bad guy to come out and take him into custody. Now, however you want to articulate that, you know, but our end state is this guy comes out and he ends up in custody one way or the other, you know, ideally peacefully, but you know, that's our, that's our end state. And so all of our plans, you know, form around that, you know, we're going to, our, our commander's intent, commander's intent is basically provides the essential focus to, to concentrate the activities and facilitate the coordination. It provides a foundation for the planning process. This is what your, the incident commander is going to articulate um, is necessary to, to, to achieve that end state and he's going to communicate that. So our, the planning process flows out of the identification of the end state is articulated in the commander's intent. So again, one incident, kind of a, you know, one end state. Where confusion can enter in is when the, the, the tactical problem is more complex. Obviously, I came from a large agency and we have a lot of resources available to us, but a lot of people on this on this um, podcast come from smaller agencies, and so you have to, you know, often if there's a, a a more complex problem, you're working with teams from other agencies, you're bringing them in, you know, and you know obviously you've got command and control issues, and so in any tactical incident, you have one incident commander. His command is critical. That one incident commander is going to be the one who's going to articulate the commander's intent. But the question is this, let's say we have a problem where we've got a warrant service where we're gonna hit five locations spread out in a, in a county. We're gonna take down this gang that's been dealing um, you know, drugs and they have weapons and they've got all, they're, just, they're a bunch of bad guys. So we need five different teams to hit those five different locations. And one of the, the center of gravity on this thing, the thing that we need to maintain um, security and surprise, a couple of principles of war, you know, we need to hit them all at once so these guys don't, can't tip each other off. So you've got five different missions, but the question is this, how many end states do you have? Because there are five different missions. And the, the typical mistake that's made is assuming because I have five missions, I have five end states. I don't have five end states. I have one end state. I have five subordinate missions that are underneath that one end state. And so you know, if the most important part of this operation is to maintain that we have to take them down all at once because that's been identified as the, you know, critical part of the plan, 
and its security is the center of gravity, you better be able to achieve your mission objectives at all five of those locations. You know, when the reconnaissance is done at those five locations, if one of them, uh, because of the terrain, is to determined to be impregnable, that it's going to take a significant um, effort to get in there, and it's not going to be something that can be pulled off quickly, that needs to be communicated to the incident commander because that may be a deal breaker. The whole mission might get scrubbed because one of the five locations can't be taken down like the other four. Because again, it all goes ultimately back to that one end state. And so again, those are the things that need to be clearly understood and articulated so people aren't taking independent action. You know, if you, if you know what the ultimate goal is, if you know the end state, then it's gonna, it's gonna drive your operation, it's gonna drive your planning, it's gonna drive your, your missions. You know, and sometimes you, you may have to actually step back from what you might otherwise want to do. That's kind of more locally focused. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the larger incidents we're seeing in the country right now, the Portland riots are a great example, I think. And I've, I've written about this on the Tactical Science page, that one of the big problems in Portland is the absence of an end state. Because the issue of end state in the examples I just gave are law enforcement only. For the most part, you don't need to interject or involve them. In a situation like they're dealing with in Portland, Seattle, all these other places, end state is not just a product of law enforcement. It's a product of city government. It's a product of uh, dealing with prosecution. I mean, there's a, multiple partners are involved in formation of the end state. And the reason why this, the, these problems are dragging on and on is because there is no end state is that those other partners involved in the process refuse to present a viable end state to bring an end to the problem. So sadly, every, night after night, those, especially in Portland, they're dealing with the same problems over and over again because they don't have an articulable end state to bring, it, to bring that, that much, much larger problem to a conclusion, to a resolution. I spent, um, and, and I know you, Marcus, you were involved in this too last year briefly, I was involved in teaching four different sessions of classes in the Pacific Northwest um, last year for tactical science. Three of those were in, in Oregon, one just outside of Portland. One was up in the, in the Puget Sound area, Tacoma PD hosted. We had officers from the Seattle Police Department in, in that class. And I can tell you right now, the officers in the Pacific Northwest are outstanding. There's no problem with the police and the sheriff's offices in Oregon and Washington at all. The problem is they don't have the support of the civil government and they can't do what needs to be done. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen that. And you break up a great point. Uh, first of all, you're right. Those guys are very squared away. And uh, honestly, our hearts go out to them every night. We have to watch the news because they're up there holding the ground the best they can. But looking at that from a point of view and Brent, Brent can actually speak to this pretty good for his experience and his organization too. But as, as team leaders in SWAT and sergeants, you know, we start learning about, Hey, it's not just about my mission and uh, the sniper mission or the, the entry team or the arrest team or the breaching team, but what are the ripple effects in planning for these other support functions? Right. And then as you, as you move up in the ranks, you start looking at it, from operations and logistics and then really depends on the size of your agency captain sometimes lieutenant and definitely chief and deputy chief you start looking at my end state now involves 
briefing city managers, city councils, board of supervisors, and, and making sure that they are supporting that mission. A lot of things you're talking about, it's very easy, I think, in law enforcement, specifically in the world of tactical operations, to get very focused on the task at hand and the work that needs to be done. And um, in some of the um, examples that you gave, your hypothetical regarding a multi-location search warrant service, it's very easy. And it's very important to to talk through the tactics, right, and the mechanics and who's going where and who's going to do what and who's going to do the breach and but that's not the end state those are those are the tactics and the things that are being put into place so i think you know as it relates to our end state and painting a picture of where you want to go and identifying what that is does require a little bit of of uh, foresight traditionally it's something that's probably largely expected of uh, managers and, and command level but it's certainly not something that's limited to command level uh, officers i think it's an expectation that we have for every officer on our team to start to identify what that end state is and then build their plan and work backwards from there. Can you give us an idea of what that end state would sound like in your hypothetical? Um, where would you implement it with, on a pre-planned operation like you're discussing? Well, again, I think it depends on the, the situation. I think that you can have a field sergeant who can articulate um, the end state if it's just he and his guys. I think he can, you know, we've got a situation where they've got to do some kind of immediate rescue rescue. Um, let's say it's going to act as shooter. You know, we're not going to wait. I mean, that's sort of, if you've got enough people there, you're going to do what you're going to, you're going to go in. And I think it, he needs to articulate, you know, very specifically, you know, we're going to stay together. You know, we're going to, we're going to move this to the sound of gunfire and we're going to eliminate the threat. I mean, that can be, that can be your end state. And there's a lot more involved in that. But the fact of the matter is you need to articulate what you're going to do. If you don't, you know, you just move and you react then everybody's going to be independent. There's not, there, you need to focus what you're, what you're doing. I'll give you kind of a, a, an amusing illustration of what happens when you don't have the end state articulated. And this is something that happened to me personally when I was a two-stripe a supervising deputy working at the Hall of Justice Jail. And this is during the Rodney King riots. Shortly before those riots broke out, um, I was um, assigned a, a team of deputies. And our job was to provide security at the Hall of Justice facility in downtown Los Angeles, right there in the heart of the Civic Center, uh, the command uh, building for the Sheriff's Department, Kitty Corner from City Hall, um, the Hall of Administration, right in the heart, heart of downtown. And so um, at one point I stepped outside to the west on Broadway and I looked to my south and I saw maybe 250, 300 or more people coming up the street. And so I got on the radio and I you know, told my, my people up in uh, main control, I said, hey, there's a big mob of people coming up the street person in main control said, why don't you come inside and lock the doors? What they were saying was, the issues on the street are not our concern. Our, you know, our end state is to provide security for the building. So come inside. Okay, I came inside. Well, the mob had no interest in the Hall of Justice. They were interested in the Parker Center, the LAPD's headquarters, which was to the east. And so they made a right hand, they made a turn, right hand turn, heading eastbound down Temple. And they passed by the, the south side of the Hall of Justice and the north side of the county courthouse. And they began busting glasses, windows, and, and, and throwing in things and trying to set fires. Well, one of our deputies in plain clothes that worked their information bureau ran outside, drew his Beretta, and started pointing it at the crowd and yelling and screaming, always wearing his shirt and tie. Well, I'm convinced that that mob had no idea that that was sheriff's headquarters. And this guy was a nut with a gun. 
So, you know, that old adage, one riot, one ranger, he dispersed the crowd. They backed off. They ran away. They, they you know, they had nothing to do with this nutty guy with a gun. So he ended the problem. And he came back inside. Well, my deputies were yelling and screaming that they were coming in the Temple Street side. They were bre breaching the facility. So I ran over there. And when I got to the, uh, the entrance there of, of, the, uh, of the building, still inside the building, there were three or there were four, about four of us in uniform, three or four guys from Information Bureau, all, you know, and, and wearing ties and, you know, looking like businessmen with guns. And there were sheriff's executives, including one of our assistant sheriffs. Now, mind you, the mob has already been dispersed by the one guy. They're heading eastbound up the street. They have no longer have any interest in the Hall of Justice. They're moving on to Parker Center. And so our assistant sheriff turns to us and says, let's go. And he walks outside. Now, what does let's go mean? What is the end state? I mean, we've mission's been accomplished already by the one deputy. But, hey, the assistant sheriff said, let's go. We go. So we walk outside. Now this mob sees uniforms and they know that uniforms aren't going to shoot them so they stop turn and start picking up anything they can and start hurling stuff at us not one of us is wearing a vest not one of us has a helmet you know the assistant sheriff like the other you know information bureau deputies is in civilian attire and we're standing there being pummeled with no plan no end state nothing we're just <laughs> the incident we're just following the assistant sheriff so I went, I went over the little two-striper that I was at the time and whispered in his ear. I said, boss, I think we ought to go inside now. I think we should go inside. He never responded to me. He just turned to head back inside and something hit him across the back. I have no idea what. It sort of exploded across his back. And then I started yelling and screaming at everybody to go inside, including the last guy that was reluctant to go inside was the first deputy who dispersed the, the mob on his own. It was probably pissed that it was you know, attacking the building again, I had to grab him by the tie and drag him inside. As soon as we were inside, the mob stopped, turned and started heading eastbound back up the street again toward Parker Center. Again, no plan, no end state. You just went out and did something, took some action that could have had, fortunately, nobody was, was injured, seriously injured. But that could have, that could have resulted in serious injury to, to those deputies, heck, even to the assistant sheriff without any tactical reason. There was no purpose for that whatsoever, none. But sometimes we just react rather than stop stepping back and thinking and articulating. And, but that was a clear illustration of a mission with no end state. And sadly, we see that a lot in law enforcement. Yeah, so what you're speaking to is that the end state is actually the foundation of all planning whether it's yes. emergency, whether it's a simple event or a complex event. And everything else is basically a logistic resource allocation to support the end state. And it could be multiple missions and multiple objectives, but it's all focused on that end state. Yes, that one end state. So speaking of that, what, what is one of the benefits of clearly defining your end state for commanders incident commanders or tactical commanders, people in charge of this event. And it could be an investigation. It could be a business plan, right? It could be anything. It could be a personal goal or uh, what, what, what you want to define yourself and what you look like three years from now. I'm like the concept applies to everything that we do. Disaster response, protest response, personal goal setting. So one, one of the lessons I, I think that you talk about really well and explain practically is how it can mitigate 
OBE being overwhelmed by events. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about how it allows lower echelons to make decisions more efficiently? Well, I think there's that, that great tactician, um, Yogi Berra, once said, if, if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to know when you get there? And I think that that's one of the things that's, that's critical with end state um, is that you need to know where, what the objective is. You need to know where you're going. And if that's not clearly stated, you, know, you don't know when you get there. So, I mean, I, I want to use, use a macro example, a big example of the power of, of, of a clearly articulated end state and how it can generate creativity and energy and uh, movement. And this is, a, this is an illustration that's not from our, our world, but it's from, it's actually spoken by a president decades ago. This was, this was uh, President John F. Kennedy in a statement before Congress on May 25th, 1961. This is a statement of end state. Now, whether Kennedy knew that's what it was, I don't, I don't know. But the fact is, this is, a, this is a statement of end state and how powerful it is. I believe, President Kennedy said, that this nation should commit itself to achieve the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. Now think about that. Very succinct statement that put into motion the entire space program that ultimately ended up with Apollo 11 landing on the moon on July 20th, 1969. Most of what was necessary to achieve that hadn't even been invented yet. But the power of a clearly articulated end state, and again, and also spoken by someone with the authority to put all those things into motion, uh, was able to achieve that. So when you clearly articulate an end state, you know, it generates creativity, it generates effort, it generates a lot of different things. And also, the goal was, was very, you know, was very clear, we're going to the moon. I mean, there was no equivocation, there's no doubt, nobody had to speculate, guess, conjecture. I mean, that was the, that was the end state. And that's how clear it needs to be articulated at our level, at whatever level, so that everybody knows what we were trying to achieve. What, what is our, because again, our objective, and one of the, another one of the principles of war, what are we trying to achieve here, needs to be articulated very, very clearly. And again, if you don't do that in, in this statement, this end state, and follow down with a, with a clearly articulated commander's intent of how to bring that about, you're going to be drifting. And um, as a byproduct of that, you're going to get less questions, yeah. which, which is going to help you keep your head up and have more situational awareness and not get drilled down into the details or to the lower echelon decisions. And that's how you can mitigate being overwhelmed by events. So as a patrol example, it would be clearly defining the end state would allow your officers or deputies on scene to make decisions to accomplish that end state within your rules of engagement. So they don't have to call and ask you questions all the time at, the, at your ad hoc CP. That's a, that's a maybe a oversimplified example, but could you maybe give us one that you've seen in, in your experience where because you defined that end state and mission objectives clearer, you, you didn't get overwhelmed by events or where you saw someone else be overwhelmed by events? Well, I, I can... I can say that how important it is to state this. There, there's an incident that where I responded to a um, situation where we had a, an individual who had basically taken himself hostage. And when 
you know, a, a call basically went out as a man with a, with a knife. I, was, I wasn't even work. I was working as a, a, a training sergeant at my station at the time. And, you know, man with a knife, no big deal. But we didn't have a, we didn't have a field sergeant that day because of staffing. And so the, the field sergeant from the adjoining station was covering. Well, then the call got upgraded to a man with a gun. Oh, that's a little different scenario now. So, you know, I th threw my vest on and responded over to the, to the scene. And when I got there, it was kind of a set piece already. By that, I mean, the guy was standing in a, uh, the doorway of a travel trailer, which coincidentally was almost the spitting image of what we had been, were using as our, um, we were having a station um, was being remodeled at the time. We were using a trailer almost exactly like the one he was standing in the doorway of as our makeshift desk. So I, I was familiar with the interior of the train somewhat by what I saw. At the one end of the, the uh, trailer was an arrest team. And on the other side of a, a brick wall was a sergeant with two deputies. So this is what I walked into. And pretty clearly what I, I saw so was, okay, here's what we got. I've got someone in command. I've got the, one of the deputies on the other side of the wall has a less lethal bean background. He's covered by a lethal nine millimeter. That's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. There's clearly an arrest team at the end of the trailer. The person in command of that arrest team was the most senior deputy that we had at our station. That's good. Now, the only thing that was maybe not so good was that there were, there were deputies involved from three different units that were there. So it was kind of an ad hoc team but it was pretty clear what, was, what, what I was dealing with there. Now, I assumed command of the arrest team. And you know, I later learned and was that they had established a tripwire that if this guy were to drop the knife from his neck, the man with the beanbag round was gonna shoot him with the beanbag, and then the arrest team was gonna come around the corner and they were going to uh, tase him and take him into custody. That was the plan. Well, the mistake I made later was I didn't really, the sergeant and I sort of, I, under, I understood I just what happened. We didn't, we didn't communicate about this. That's a whole other story. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that was the plan. So the man drops his hand away from his neck and the deputy with the beanbag shotgun pulls the trigger. Click. He forgot the chamber around. So um, that's laid plans. So now he chambers around and the bad guy figures out what the, what's going on. So he decides he's going to lock himself inside the trailer. Well, now the deputy fires around and clearly hits this guy. So if you, once you hit the guy, you own him. So I ordered the team to make an entry. Now, mind you, he's inside this 23-foot trailer, and he has supposedly, he's claimed he has access to a gun, although no one's ever seen the gun. Every time he, he pulls his hand out from behind his back, he's pointing at them with his finger. So he's got a knife to his neck, but he's pointing at him with his finger. There's no evidence of a gun. So we, we finally open the door. He's standing in the doorway, bleeding from his ear, because we, we kind of Van Gogh'd him. The beanbag shotgun round sliced off the lower part of his ear. And That's a the, tactical term, Van Gogh'ing yeah, somebody. Van Gogh'ing someone, yeah. They, I thought I'd share that with you. That's an that's a LASD term. Um, and so we, uh, we tase this guy, and we take him into custody. Now, afterwards... He said, the question was asked, why did we make entry? That became a big deal afterwards, why we made entry. Think about it. The end state was to take this guy into custody. That much was clear. Once we shot him and he went inside there, 
he is a mentally disturbed person who's, who's also drunk. Is any SWAT team in the state responding to that? There's no hostage. I, I don't know, maybe some will, but I don't know many. I mean, it's a problem that's gonna be handled by patrol. And as a, less le as a less lethal instructor, I know that during those first few seconds, when you employ a less lethal, is when you need to take advantage of the, the diversion that's been caused by that, especially one that leaves this guy with, you know, a newly designed ear. Because we, so we made entry. And we took him into custody and then fire came and carted him off. But, you know, I understood what the end state was. It was very clear to me what the end state was. There was no doubt in my mind. That's why I gave the command for the team to make entry. Had I not understood what the end state was, had we waited, how long do you think a guy with, with a sliced off ear um, who's got all those issues I mentioned, how well do you think he would have done for an hour or two hours waiting for whatever to respond to, to deal with that. What other tools or tactics would we have, we've had to have used to, to handle that problem? And so I don't know if that necessarily articulates to the issue of being OBE, but I think it does articulate the, the issue of what, how, when you come into a situation, you identify what the end state is, it causes you to, to you know, take action rather than inaction. Now, I think it. Again, I think it does. I think you're what you're speaking to is if you clearly understand the end state, your people can identify windows of opportunity to accomplish that. And if they don't take advantage of those windows of opportunity, because they're unclear on the end state, or they have to call back and ask for permission, your entire operation can go a different direction, and you're not going to be able to seize that that opportunity. So I think it's a great example. And uh, obviously, I learned a new term as well. And uh, well, I just try to help. Marcus, if I could, you know. Yeah, you, you could know, just help. A new term, go for it. <laughs> well, we, uh, not to make fun of somebody's uh, injury, but uh, Van Gogh does paint an exact picture of the events that took place, so I think it's appropriate. Yes. So. I think the value that it brings, too, in this type of a situation is, like you said, clarifying not only what it is that you're trying to do, but <clears throat> it's a role and responsibility that we have within law enforcement, especially on a supervisory level or management level to be able to clarify what the expectation is we have this um, false sense of security and policies and procedures and policies are great mm -hmm. procedures and manuals are great as well um, and clarifying you know what it is that we want you know our employees to do but not everything can be codified um, um, or captured in that manner so i think it's very important to really clarify what it is that you're wanting to be done that way um, employees like you talked about marcus don't have to call back and ask for permission they don't have to say mother may i we want to allow for reactionary authority to, in their decision making but also getting to the point where they have the comfort in being able to make their decisions and being able to apply that commander's intent to the problem um, that they're seeing uh, in, in front of their eyes. The fact that we had a head injury from a less lethal also immediately um, made it an internal affairs response. Typically we would have handled, if we'd hit the guy where we were supposed to hit the guy, it would have been handled at the station level. But the fact that there was a head injury caused IA to respond. And because we were so confident of what we did and you know how we how it all went down nobody wrapped up everybody we interviewed gave the interview to IA that day because you know we were we were very very confident that what we had done was what we needed to do the situation was unfortunate because the the deputy hadn't chambered that round like he should have you know it, it was what it was 
Now, there was some fallout after that, which I disagreed with, but you know, that's typical. Um, but the fact that remains that, um, you know, I think the fact that I understood the principles um, so well caused me to not hesitate at all to send that team. And, you know, so again, that speaks, I think, also to just making yourself aware of, of everything around you, the, the, the tools you have, um, how they work. Um, I said, knowing I had that, that very limited window where he was going to be distracted by the, the injury until he was going to recover from it, you know, being able to commit those resources that we had right there to it. And, you know, you've got to be able to exploit that. And I think that that, that is a supervisor uh, or as a senior officer, you know, as long as you can articulate why you did what you did, I didn't have any hesitation. I can't imagine doing it any differently despite the outcome. Yeah. And that examples actually, while it's somewhat a simple one, it's, it's one we deal with regularly on a day-to-day basis in law enforcement and, and to bring it back to uh, the end state. One thing you mentioned a couple of times, I just wanted to drive that point home is once that's your foundational principle. So whether it's an emergency plan, a hasty plan, like what you did, or it's a planning event for a more complex task, like a swap mission or civil disturbance response, or could be providing security to a concert. This little piece of wisdom sort of comes from a, a retired LASD commander who was sort of notorious um, for, he would arrive on scene and he had a very simple way of assessing whether the, the uh, person who was in command of the scene uh, knew what they were doing or not. And he would make his decisions on whether he left them alone to continue what they're doing or whether he relieved them of command based on their answers to two ver- three very simple questions. And he, he, would bring, he would break out the, his famous three by five card and read these questions. And the first question was this, what have you got? So succinctly describe to me what this incident is and what it's all about. And what have you done? So how have you handled this situation up to this point? And lastly, what are you, what are you planning to do? And the, the on-scene incident commander needs to be able to articulate all three of those things. And, and at the, underneath all three of those things, at the foundation of all three of those things, are end state. Being able to articulate what, what you got, you know, what you've done, and what you're going to do, you need to understand the situation. You need to understand the end state. And I think that that goes right to the heart of you know, what we've been talking about here. You know, but you've got to be able to demonstrate that you know what you're doing and, and, and that you understand these principles. And that's the way you're going to do it. And it's an easy concept, right, to talk about the end state. It's funny when we go and, and we talk about it in our TL or commander schools and critical incident management, stuff like that. It's almost uh, like, oh, yeah, no kidding. That's what we do. But if you go back and you study any of these significant tactical events, either from our history or recent, and you see anything that's going wrong, it's not always traced back to an unclear or undefined end state, but there's always a, that's always a factor because somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody did not prioritize their particular part of that mission in the right order, or there was a confusion or there was a, you know, a coupling problem between two units trying to accomplish a complex task, but, but it still goes back to clearly defining that end state. So it's very interesting. As simple as it is, is hard, much harder and complex in practice. Well, let me give you two, as we kind of wrap this thing up here, let me, let me give you a couple of quotes that are um, 
about 2,500 years old that uh, kind of articulate, help articulate the importance of this. And one of, one of, and both of them are from the same author. With regard to precipitous heights, if you are beforehand with your adversary, you should occupy the raised and sunny spots and there wait for him to come up. That basically, that wisdom from Sun Tzu essentially was what General John Buford understood and recognized when he arrived in the field of battle at Gettysburg. A simple principle that went back, you know, centuries when executed properly and when that end state was, was articulated well and moved forward to 1863, provided the, the guidance so that the Union would win the, the most important battle in the Civil War. But uh, the final quote from Sun Tzu, I think, is also relevant to us today. And I'm going I'm to say it and I'm going to paraphrase it. To fight and conquer in all our battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. And I think the paraphrase of that is this. Our goal should not be to fight. Our goal should be to win. And, you know, a lot happens uh, when we have to lay hands on people and use force. And we're seeing, you know, even when it's absolutely reasonable, we're seeing consequences of that this year that are unprecedented. If you can you know, demonstrate superior tactics and, you know, there are times when you can, you can win the battle without, without firing a shot. And I think that uh, understanding end state and being able to effectively uh, demonstrate it and for uh, a suspect sometimes that in and of itself um, is enough to resolve your problem. Those are great quotes, John. We actually uh, quote that second one in our team leader class all the time, but uh, Sun Tzu is uh, pretty amazing. The fact that all those concepts still apply today. Any other questions for John before we wrap up? No, it's a great conversation, John. Thank you. It's an important topic to us and something we wanted to uh, be able to relay and hopefully get some of this practical information to our listeners. We think it's a, it's a concept that's been largely underutilized in, uh, in policing. Um, it's something that doesn't necessarily need to revolve around just around tactics. It can, it can revolve around any form of policing and, and uh, what we're doing and, you know, the work that, uh, that you've done in this topic and, uh, and Sid as well as something that's really uh, sits beaten to, to my head as well as, as Marcus's as well. And um, we've been able to take it, try to apply it in, in other areas, our personal life as well. And, uh, and um, so it's, it's, been very beneficial to me personally and professionally. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thanks again, John. I appreciate your patience. Again, we had some technical problems today, but uh, I really wanted to get this out and I want to continue this, this deal where we can kind of talk about the different concepts, try to get uh, Tim and Odie and Sid back on and, and kind of talk about the tactical science concept. So uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.